Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, both the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia are filled with epic battles between the forces of good and evil. What many people don't realize is that the author of these two works, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, had firsthand experience with the war themselves. Both fought in the bleak trenches of World War I, and both were dramatically shaped by that experience in a way that would influence their later work. My guest today explores the history of Tolkien's and Lewis's battlefield experience and how it influenced their viewpoints and writing careers. His name is Joseph Locanti. He's a professor of history at King's College and the author of A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and The Great War, How J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis Rediscovered Faith, Friendship, and Heroism in the Cataclysm of 1914 and 1918. On today's show, Joseph and I discuss what C.S. Lewis called the myth of progress that swept the Western world leading up the First World and why it contributed to the war's catastrophic damage and how the myth shaped both Lewis's and Tolkien's view about good, evil, and warfare. We then get into detail about Tolkien's and Lewis' battlefield experience and how it inspired specific characters and scenes in their respective works. And then we end our conversation about how the fantasy work of these writers carved a middle path between cynicism and unbridled optimism while simultaneously showing readers that even the lowliest of individuals can play a decisive role in the great adventure of life. If you're a fan of Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia, you don't want to miss this episode. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash hobbitwarrior. Joseph Lacanti, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Brett. It's great to be with you. So you wrote a book called A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, and it's all about C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, experience in the trenches of World War I and how it influenced their lives and later on their writing. I'm curious, what prompted you to look at their war experience specifically to see how that influenced their writing and the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings series? Yeah, well, there are several things, Brett. I, I teach uh, Western civilization and American foreign policy at the King's College in New York City. And having to teach the First World War year after year, the more you read and think about that conflict, the more you realize how cataclysmic it really was uh, for the West, for the Europeans, for the United States, really for the world. And then when I picked up a wonderful biography of, of Tolkien uh, several years ago by uh, a carpenter, uh, and I realized that Tolkien had fought in the First World War. I knew Lewis had fought in that conflict. I didn't realize Tolkien had fought as well. So finally, the light goes on in my head. And I think, well, wait a minute. 
We've got Tolkien and Lewis who both survived the trenches of World War I. They go to Oxford, they meet there, they become great friends, and then both of them go on to write these epic stories of heroism, sacrifice, valor, where war is really at the center of both their stories. So you just begin to wonder how might the experience, the furnace of combat in the First World War, how might that have influenced their literary imagination? And that's really what the book is about. And how much do we know about their war experience? Do they have like, do they write diaries? I mean, what sources did you use to research the book? You know, there have been a couple of good uh, accounts. John Garth has a very good account of Tolkien's war experience, really taking him from beginning to end. Uh, his friendships, uh, his work there as a second lieutenant, uh, as a signals officer there uh, at, at the Somme. Uh, Lewis was probably better in some ways at keeping a diary, although, uh, you know, both these men were, were pretty careful about, or I should say modest, about uh, drawing too much attention to themselves and their war experiences. Lewis's autobiography, uh, Surprised by Joy, is where he probably tells us the most about his war experience. So a combination of their letters, uh, some very good biographies of those men, uh, and then, of course, looking in their works and trying to discern how might that war of experience literally have worked its way into their, into their great epic stories. So the one thing that I loved most about your book is that you do such a great job of providing the cultural backdrop of what was going on in the West, in Europe, in the United States uh, before World War I. And um, particularly, you talk about this idea of the myth of progress. Um, what was that, that myth? What, what entailed the myth of progress? Yeah, this is kind of the, uh, the historian's task here, Brett, is to try to put these authors in their historical context and I think if there's one narrative that is shaping the mind of Western civilization, particularly the Europeans, but also the Americans, uh, on the eve of the outbreak there of, of the First World War, it's this myth of progress. That's an expression I borrow from C.S. Lewis himself. This idea that not, uh, not just in a technological sense or in a scientific sense or in an, in an industrial sense is mankind progressing, that all that is true according to people living uh, there at the turn of the 20th century. We're advancing technologically, scientifically, but also we seem to be advancing morally and even spiritually. Uh, that There's this unstoppable train of progress. Uh, everything is getting better in every way, every day. And that, that mood, that psychological outlook is so strong, it really infects virtually every discipline, the academy, popular culture, the scientific community, and even the churches. The idea that mankind himself is slowly ripening toward perfection. And that's part of what makes the war, the First World War, the most devastating war the, the West had ever experienced. That's part of what makes it so disillusioning to, to a generation of men and women and why that then becomes so important to Tolkien and Lewis. So, I mean, how did it manifest, this myth of progress manifest itself in the academy or uh, particularly or the church? Let's talk about the church because, like, you know, the, Lewis and Tolkien, um, their faith is really um, uh, woven into their works. How did this idea of the myth of progress affect uh, Christianity? It's a terrific question. It's a big question. I think uh, on, the more, on the more liberal side of the churches— and um, uh, it certainly affects the conservative churches as well. But on the more liberal side, I, I think the way this myth of progress influenced the churches is, is was at several levels. One level was that um, even war itself 
uh, became seen as something that could be redemptive and cleansing. So if you look at the sermons, uh, once the war begins, you look at those sermons during the First World War, and this is true across the board in Europe and in the United States, you have so many preachers expecting a kind of spiritual revival, renewal, a transformation of society. It'll be the purging of of all kind of unpleasantness. Autocracies will, will fall to the wayside. Democracy is the wave of the future. And you really see this coming from the pulpits. And, and many ministers, not so much, the, uh, so much the guys in the trenches, but many ministers uh, transform this conflict into kind of a holy crusade. Uh, and, and that, I think, is, is part of the, uh, the legacy of the myth of progress, that even war itself, which, think about it, it is an inherently destructive enterprise. You're destroying things. You're destroying human life. But even the war could be seen uh, as a uh, an agent of progress by 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 the church, uh, by our politicians, by our social thinkers. Really, a, a remarkable thing uh, uh, to be occurring uh, at the outset of war. And I think it's interesting because it was Christians fighting Christians, right? These are these are Europe, you know, British fighting Germans, Americans fighting Germans, and you know, so it was like everyone thought they were on the right side, but they were like saying they're on the same side at the same time. That's exactly right. Everyone believes that that, that God is on their side. And this, again, is part of what makes the aftermath of the war so important, especially for Tolkien and Lewis. What happens then in the aftermath, you've had this buildup that the war is going gonna, is gonna to be a short war. It's, a war. it's a war to end all wars. It's a war to make the world safe for democracy. None of that happens. It becomes the most devastating and lethal conflict in history. And so in the aftermath of that, with all of these promises going into it, the, the sense of disillusionment and gloom and then the, the rejection of liberal democracy, the rejection of Christianity, which had been so associated with this war, these alleged Christian nations engaged in a sort of massive global suicide pact. And so the, the mood of gloom and cynicism and doubt is so strong. It's such a strong current in the 1920s and 30s. I think that helps us to understand really the achievement of Tolkien and Lewis, that they are not swept up in that, in that mood of gloom and disillusionment. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a bit, but I thought it was interesting in your book is you, you lay out this myth of progress and how everyone's getting swept up by it. But it seems like both Lewis and Tolkien were immune from it. Um, why was that? Why didn't they buy into the myth of progress? Well, it's a, it's a terrific question. I think that uh, uh, Lewis admits, and I'll quote here if I could, uh, uh, Brett, from the, from the book here from Lewis. He says, uh, I grew up believing in this myth. And I have felt, I still feel, it's almost perfect grandeur. It is one of the most moving and satisfying world dramas which has ever been imagined. It was incredibly powerful. Lewis, as a young atheist, there going into the war, he goes into the war as an atheist, he comes out uh, an atheist, and he is caught up in that myth up to a point. Certainly, I think the, the realism of the trenches, the mortars, the machine guns, uh, the flamethrowers, the chemical gas, the barbed wire, the human devastation, that sobered a lot of people about that myth. I don't think uh, Tolkien was as caught up in it as, as Lewis was. Tolkien went into that war as a believing Catholic. And so he has a pretty good sense of the fall of man, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of the fall. And I, I think that helps to restrain Tolkien because of his, his, his Catholic Christian faith. It helps to restrain him from being pulled into this myth of progress. Though Lewis, though, is very much, as he goes into the war, I think he's 
he has that uh, idea going in, it, it gets chastened. And then, of course, he will have a spiritual journey uh, throughout the 1920s and 1930s as he meets Tolkien and other Christians there at Oxford. I thought it was interesting about, interesting about Tolkien is that even before the war, uh, he had a very, and I wouldn't say he wasn't a Luddite uh, per se, but like he had an appreciation for creation, for nature, and he saw um, this mechanization as sort of a, uh, I don't know, an apostasy, I guess would be the right word, of like what God had intended yeah. for man. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, uh, Tolkien gr- is growing up in Birmingham, which becomes a real industrial hub uh, there in England at the turn of the century. And he, like Lewis, you know, these are men who, they, they, they go on to become medieval scholars, professors of English literature, uh, and there's something about that simpler life closer to the earth that is so appealing to both of them. And, of course, you see it in both their works. Just one example, you know, in The Lord of the Rings, the, the last march of the Ents, well, what is that? These tree creatures who are rebelling against the, the abuse of technology and, and weaponry, the destruction of the earth. Those men experienced the destruction of the earth uh, in the First World War. I mean, the iconic images of the war, trees laid bare because of the mortar fire, the machine gun fire. So they, they experienced that, that assault on nature at a, at a firsthand level. And I think their rebellion against that that technology, the abuse of technology, not only against man, but against nature, that finds its way in both their works, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So at what point did Lewis and Tolkien get into the trenches? Did they, were they one of the ones that just volunteered right away or did they, were they reluctant soldiers? These were reluctant soldiers. These, neither of them were were holy warriors uh, going into the first world war. I think, uh, you know, by the time uh, a token is ready to uh, enlist in 1916. Remember, the war is on for two years already. Britain has about, I don't know, at least a million men on the continent of Europe. At least 200,000 British soldiers have already been killed by 1916. So when he leaves, he writes in his journal, parting from my wife was like a death because even even British uh, officers were being were being killed by the dozens every week and every month. He didn't think he was going to come back alive when he departs there in June of 1916. And he goes right to the front and Tolkien will become part of the Battle of the Somme, which to this day is the, the uh, July 1st, the opening day of the Battle of the Somme there in France. It is the single bloodiest day in British history. Uh, close to 20,000 men perished in that battle alone. Tolkien will survive that battle, but he'll lose as he says, almost all of his closest friends perished in the First World War. Yeah, it seems like Tolkien kind of lucked out. He caught uh, trench fever, and he was shipped back to England. And after that point, all of his friends and comrades died. Yes, a severe bout of trench fever will take him out of the war uh, by 1918. Uh, now, for Lewis, uh, he he's, he's a little bit uh, younger than Tolkien. He goes into that war uh, in 1917. So even more killing, more bloodshed, and again, a reluctant uh, a guy who, who, is, who enlists. By 1916 or so, Brit- Britain has instituted the draft. He enlists. He arrives on the front on his 19th birthday. Imagine being a 19-year-old man uh, with your whole future in front of you, all these uh, ambitions for an academic life, a peaceful academic life, have to put on, be put on hold. 
uh, and he goes in as an officer as well. Lewis will be injured. A mortar shell will go off close to him, kills the sergeant standing close by. Lewis is injured in three places by shrapnel. And in a sense, he gets the best possible injury because it's the kind of injury that will not be uh, life debilitating, but it will take him out of the war for the remainder of the war. Uh, and when you read his letters there, the sense of relief uh, and, and sheer joy at now escaping the trenches, it's unmistakable and it's, it's so sobering uh, and it will change the course of his life. And why were Lewis and Tolkien both reluctant warriors? Uh, I mean, what was the, how was their attitude um, about war and warfare in general uh, different from this holy war attitude that most Europeans and Americans had? You know, that's a great question, Brett. And uh, it's a little hard for me to unpack all of it. But based on their letters uh, at the time and then their correspondence looking back on it later, I think for different reasons, as you as you piece together their letters at the time and then their correspondence uh, later on reflecting on that war, uh, they were either not uh, of age. Lewis was not of age in 1914 to have enlisted. Uh, Tolkien is, in, is involved in his academic career, begins his academic career. Uh, and I think that the, the bloodshed, the sheer bloodshed in the first year of the war, which surprised everybody. Remember, a lot of men went off to war jubilant, exuberant at the, at the prospect of war. But, but, but a year into the thing, uh, all of the Allied forces and the Axis powers, they have rushed to stalemate. And now we're getting back the reality of the war, even with all the propaganda, the, 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 the suffering and the horror of the trenches. Those stories, firsthand stories, are being delivered back to the home front. Uh, and Tolkien and Lewis are very aware that they have information now that men in 1914 did not have. That's part of the reason, I think. That's part of the reason. Okay. So, I mean, what big picture themes did both Tolkien and Lewis develop while they were in the trenches that would later emerge in their respective works? Well, I guess one of the most obvious, of course, and perhaps the most surprising, given the, the mood of their age, it is heroism. It's the idea of valor, a sacrifice for a noble cause, that some wars will be necessary, some wars are just, even as we fight them, perhaps in an unjust way, uh, they can have a, a noble, decent, and humane purpose uh, and outcome. And that becomes one of the themes for both these men in, in a way that is really surprising because there was so much anti-war literature, anti-war memoirs, novels, poetry, I mean, scores and scores of books and, and, and poetry uh, that came out in the 1920s and 1930s. You know, you think of, of novels like All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, Goodbye to All of That, uh, T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland. I mean, th these, these are fiercely anti-war uh, novels and, and poetry and literature. And, and Tolkien and Lewis resist that. They are not going to let go of this idea of heroism and sacrifice for a noble cause. And I thought it was interesting, too, you talk about the, uh, the idea of The Hobbit. Right. Uh, Tolkien said kind of the, the soldiers in Britain, like he, they were the inspiration for the hobbits. Yeah, that's exactly right, Brett. And that was one of the things that convinced me once I read that, once I discovered that in, in Tolkien's work, in his own private letters. And then I knew this is a book that somebody had to write and maybe I should write it because as as what, what I knew about Tolkien I, and, and, you know, loving the hobbit, loving uh, the Lord of the Rings, I had no idea that Tolkien uh, based his Hobbit, the creature of the Hobbit, Sam Gamgee and Frodo, 
on the soldiers that he knew, as he says it explicitly in one of his letters, my Sam Gamgee uh, is, is based on the, on the Batman, the, the people who served and helped uh, the officers, the Batman and the soldiers in the trenches that I knew in the First World War and considered as so far superior to myself. So what he saw under fire was the resilience and the courage, the kind of stubborn bravery and loyalty of the ordinary English soldier and the British Expeditionary Force, 1914, 15, 16, right through the war. It was a remarkable fighting force. Uh, and Tolkien got to experience that up close and it impressed him deeply. And I think that very much the same uh, for C.S. Lewis. They were officers who had seen the loyalty, the stubborn loyalty and the sacrifice of the men around them. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. 
ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And besides the the idea of the Hobbit coming from the um, British soldiers, are there any other specific instances in either Lewis's work or Tolkien's work where they can they said like that that was inspired from exact like that battle inspired this scene in my book? Yeah, I think there are a number of them. Let's take uh, Tolkien for a minute here, uh, Brett, and you know. Uh, we can't be certain about this. There are moments when, when Tolkien will make some references uh, that where it's clear. Other times, you have to kind of imagine, all right, does this sound like a soldier in the trenches of the First World War or not? So, for example, when Tolkien is describing the siege of Gondor, uh, as he puts it, where fires leaped up, where great engines crawled across the field, and the ground was choked with wreck and with bodies of the slain, and then busy as ants, hurrying, orcs were digging, digging lines of deep trenches in a huge ring just outside the bow shot from the walls. That is starting to sound like uh, the battlefields there along the Western Front, uh, right there, it seems to me, would be one example. I mean, the other place you think about with Tolkien again, sticking with Tolkien, if we could, for a moment, uh, the description of the dead marshes, the desolate path to Mordor. How does Tolkien describe it? He says the dead grasses, the rotting weeds looming up in the mist like ragged shadows of long forgotten summers. And then Sam Gamgee looking intently into the grimy muck, startled by what he sees, Tolkien says. There are dead things, dead faces in the water. And then Gollum laughing, the dead marshes. Yes, that is their name. Well, think about it. If you're a soldier on the Western Front in 1916, what are you seeing there? You are see, you're experiencing that what every soldier, virtually every soldier experienced, finding men dead in these craters that have been caused by the mortar shells filled up with water and discovering these bodies days or weeks later. And we know this because Martin Gilbert, who interviewed Martin Gilbert, the great uh, war historian, who interviewed Tolkien in the 1960s and asked Tolkien about this explicitly. And Gilbert goes on to say, this is exactly what soldiers would have experienced on the front. And then Tolkien himself says, the dead marshes owe something to Northern France after the Battle of the Somme. Well, that's pretty conclusive evidence of the, the riveting, horrifying experience of war, how it makes its way into his great epic work. So after the war, 
both Lewis and Tolkien go back and they begin or Tolkien start restarts his academic career. Lewis starts his, and that's where they, um, and I guess is that Oxford where they, yes, at Oxford, uh, they meet in 1926. Right. And that's where the whole inkling started. Um, a world famous sort of mastermind group, but they also <laughs> formed an intense friendship between the, themselves. Yeah. Um, did the two of them talk about the war or write each other letters about their experience in the war? You know, it's a terrific question. A couple of points on this, Brett. Uh, when we when we think about this group of fellow scholars and fellow Christians that they formed at Oxford, the Inklings, think about the First World War and the intense comradeship that men experienced in combat. We we associate that with the Second World War. You know, the the film Band of Brothers. But the, but the men who went into the First World War, the British who enlisted, they often enlisted uh, from the same town, the same village. And so they experienced the same kind of comradeship, friendship, deep friendship that, that men know under fire and they don't quite experience anything quite like it in civilian life. And I think the formation of the Inklings was an attempt by Tolkien and Lewis to recapture something of that comradeship, but with a different cause, a different purpose, the, the, the writing of great literature, which is kind of fun to think about. But uh, more to your point then on the, on the question, well, that they discussed a war with each other. Uh, it's pretty clear that they did uh, in different ways. And, and, and Tolkien and Lewis met not only in the Inklings, but they would meet at the Eastgate Hotel, a place they would meet at the Eagle and Child Pub, uh, just the two of them sometimes. Uh, they, they met regularly. You know, there's a place, there's a letter here. Let me see if I can find it uh, digging back here uh, in this book where um, uh, Lewis is thrilled about the, uh, the completion of Tolkien's work, The Lord of the Rings. He reads it in manuscript. Tolkien read virtually every chapter of The Lord of the Rings out loud uh, to Lewis, which is just amazing to think about. Lewis was, was Tolkien's uh, really greatest encourager and fan of, of, this, of this book. And Tolkien says at one point that he never would have brought The Lord of the Rings uh, to, a, to a completion had it not been for uh, Lewis's encouragement. Uh, and so it's just an amazing friendship that they have, that he has that kind of uh, relationship with Lewis, that he shares this work so close to his heart, which is a war story. And I think that's part of the reason he can share it with Lewis. It's a war story. And as a war story, it avoids two great extremes. Now, if I could just make this point, uh, Brett, that's worth making. It avoids two great extremes, this war story. It avoids the typical triumphalism uh, that you might find with some writers romanticizing conflict. I don't think these, these authors, neither Tolkien nor Lewis, ever romanticize war. But it also avoids the kind of fatalism and cynicism uh, of what became a, a motif of their generation, the anti-war fatalism. It, it avoids both those. There's a realism, a grim realism uh, in their war stories, but also the sense of hope and valor and sacrifice. And you, I'm just so confident that these men had those conversations. There's a letter uh, uh, that Lewis wrote to Tolkien back to this point after his manuscript was published. I can't find it here in, in, my, in my work, but I can almost quote it from memory, where Lewis says to Tolkien, he says, um, commenting on this manuscript on the Lord of the Rings, he says, so much of our life together, so much of the war, meaning the First World War, so much of the war now has been captured in this work. Uh, so much of their shared life together and so much of the war has been captured in this 
in this great epic work. That's the impact that the work had on Lewis. That's how he interpreted the Lord of the Rings, that it was somehow in a way that he couldn't even fully describe. It had captured their common experience of war. That's pretty remarkable when you think about the Lord of the Rings and its impact, not just, of course, on, on Lewis's life, but on the lives of so many people afterwards. Yeah, this idea of how Tolkien um, sort of carved a middle path between sort of cynicism and existential despair and sort of this romantic, romanticizing um, warfare, he, it sort of it ties in with his idea of eucatastrophe, I think Tolkien, it's a Greek word that Tolkien invented. Um, yes. What is eucatastrophe? Yes, eucatastrophe, E-U, and then the word catastrophe. Uh, according to Tolkien, it's the sudden miraculous grace. It's the happy ending, but it's such, it's such a surprising ending. When it all seems lost, when it really seems like it's all coming to a dreadful end, that we're going to be overwhelmed by this by the great shadow of evil there's a sudden miraculous grace that brings about redemption a rescue now, and i think this this you see this in both their stories tolkien the lord of the rings uh and lewis and the chronicles of narnia think about tolkien's story uh this is where their understanding of heroism is not like our modern understanding of heroism the modern hero uh saves the day by his or her a strength, ingenuity, good looks, and usually great firepower at hand, right? But for Tolkien, uh, the, the hero, the heroic, it's defined by your resilience, your willingness, your, your uh, readiness to sacrifice everything for this great noble cause, despite the fact that it looks like your cause is doomed. So what happens in the, in the Lord of the Rings? Well, at the end of their quest, Frodo and Sam, Frodo, the hero, one of the great heroes in the story. Frodo, in a sense, he succumbs to evil. He succumbs to the great temptation of the ring. And what does he say at the end? He says, I will not do the thing that I came to do. The ring is mine. And he puts the ring back on his finger. And in that sense, he fails in his quest. Well, how is it resolved? Well, the ring is destroyed, but not by Frodo and not by the great company. His, his, his allies in this, not by the fellowship. The ring is destroyed by Gollum, this wicked, wretched creature who seizes it from Frodo, puts it on his own finger, and then falls into the great cataclysm of the fires of Mount Doom. And so the ring is destroyed by a sudden and miraculous grace. It's a catastrophe, according to Tolkien. And now look at Lewis, how he picks up this theme as well. In the last battle, the children, they are, they, are, they are tossed, they are, they are hurled into the stable. They are forced into the stable, which, as far as they understand it, this is where the great evil is. This is their end. It means doom. It means certain doom and death. And Poggin says, I can think of a hundred deaths I would rather have died rather than being tossed into this, drawn into this stable certain death. And what happens? Well, the lion, the great lion, Aslan, is in the stable, and he has cast out the demon Tash, and now he has recreated Narnia. And so there's a great, what, there's a great rescue and redemption, a sudden and miraculous grace. Uh, but it's not the children of Narnia who have brought it about, it's Aslan, the great lion. So 
uh, for both their stories. This you catastrophe, if you think about it, this really is the Christian story, uh, the Christian narrative, a grace, a source of goodness beyond us that has to rescue us. Yes, we have to be willing, willing partners in this great story. But at the end of the day, we don't save ourselves. We are saved and rescued by a force of grace and goodness outside of ourselves. That is a deeply Christian idea, isn't it? It is. Um, and you see, you mentioned earlier that after the war, this sort of um, feeling of cynicism and disillusion saturated the culture. Um, but again, both Tolkien and Lewis were immune from it. Um, why is that? Was it their Christian faith that kept them immune from it or— I'm sure other Christians who felt that this was the Holy War before World War I started, they must have been disillusioned, but uh, Tolkien and Lewis weren't. That is a fabulous question, and I can only give you a partial answer to that because it's, it's, it's sometimes a little hard to know what does prevent people from succumbing uh, uh, to the spirit of the age. And it is a pretty dark uh, spirit of the age if you think about it. Um, you know, there's, a, there's an amazing uh, moment there where uh, people like T.S. Eliot, who you know, writes, writes The Wasteland, a real agnostic for a good chunk of his life, but then he converts, uh, T.S. Eliot does, to uh, Christianity. And uh, there's, a, there's a line here from Virginia Woolf, a letter. Uh, T.S. Eliot was part of the Bloomberry set, a literary set, very skeptical uh, group of authors in Britain, in London. Virginia Woolf is one of them. And when she discovers, just to give you a sense of how dark the mood was here, Brett, when she discovers that T.S. Eliot, her, her, her former friend and colleague, has become a Christian, she writes a letter to one of her friends about all this. And here's what she says in the letter. I've had a most shameful and distressing interview with dear Tom Eliot, who may be called dead to us all from this day forward. He's become an Anglo-Catholic believer in God and goes to church. I was shocked. A corpse would seem to be more credible than he is. I mean, there's something obscene in a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. Well, that is the mood of the intellectual set uh, in much of Europe, particularly in the academy, at Oxford, at Cambridge, and elsewhere, to become this a believing Christian. And that's what these men most definitely are by the 1930s. Well, certainly when Lewis converts to Christianity, uh, partially because of the, the great help of, of Tolkien and his friends. And, it, and it more directly to answer your question, how did they resist this mood of gloom, cynicism, doubt, and disillusionment? Uh, in part by forming uh, a group called the Inklings, this like-minded men, uh, Christian men, uh, authors, uh, accomplished and aspiring authors, who are serious thinkers, serious scholars. And so they, they meet every week, I think for at least a 13-year period through the 1930s, through the Second World War. They meet every Thursday evening in Lewis's rooms there at Oxford, and they meet again also uh, Tuesday mornings at the Eagle and Child Pub. And that, that commitment to each other, that friendship, I think is one of the explanations for their capacity uh, to maintain their sense of calling as Christian writers in a very dark, skeptical, uh, gloomy period. I think it's interesting, too, their embrace of Nordic myths, of uh, romantic fairy tales. That also had a, a role in, in there as well. 
Yeah, it did. They are, they are men who have steeped themselves in terms of their scholarship, their writing, their thinking, uh, in these epic tales of heroism. Tolkien, a translated Beowulf, uh, this ancient uh, English story of war and heroism, uh, and his scholarship on Tolkien, just it, uh, on, on Beowulf, it, it just it changed the scholarship and how he interpreted it. And for, for Lewis, it's, it's, it's very similar. It's, it's ancient uh, stories, the Aeneid, the Iliad. Uh, they are raised with these stories, grow up with these stories. Um, uh, the death of Arthur. Uh, and so there's a, there's a way in which these men, they take these ancient and medieval stories of heroism. But I think, uh, Brett, they, they reinterpret that ancient story for the modern mind. And they give it a kind of modern cast. And I think that helps to explain its enduring relevance and appeal in our own day. There is a there is a grim realism to both their stories, and particularly with Tolkien, it is almost overwhelming the sense of dread. You pick up this as well in the Chronicles of Narnia, but remember, those stories are for children, so they're not quite as dark and as graphic. Tolkien is is, is willing to go a little bit further. Uh, in in how real how realistic this the story is, and you just you just can't escape it. The battle scenes, uh, the 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 sense of gloom, <laughs> the the darkness of the story. No one is immune uh, to the dark forces in their stories. Uh, uh, that's that's one of the most striking things. No one is immune to to, to being pulled into the to the darkness of the story. Uh, the the lore and temptation of evil is so real and palpable, and I think that also speaks to all of us. If we're honest with ourselves, uh, none of us is immune uh, to the to the darkness within. Right? Yeah. No. It is. It is gloomy. I'm listening to the Lord of the Rings with my son right now in the car, and uh, yeah, there's that impending sense of doom at always, and you always feel like, and even Gandalf, right? You feel like the Gandalf's this guy. He's going to help them, but even some even Gandalf sometimes can't help. And I always feel bad for the hobbits when Gandalf's not there for him. <laughs> yes, even Gandalf says, I can't take the ring. You know, Frodo, you, you've been appointed to this task, this, this, mis- this mysterious blending of, of free will, but also it seems providence. You know, you've been chosen for the ring, but, you know, you also have a choice to make. And, it, and I think this goes back again to the war experience. It's the, it's the hobbit, these, these little creatures. Tolkien says explicitly, that you know, I made my hobbits of small stat, uh, small in stature, reflecting the ordinary English soldier. These these little people, so much depends on them and the choices that they make, uh, and things that almost seem to be out of their control, and yet they have this free will. They have the capacity to join the side of goodness and decency and humanity, and ultimately joining God's side of of the story, God's side of the fight. The side of light, not the side of darkness. The smallest of creatures can make this immense difference in in the great story of redemption. So true to both their stories. Joseph, this has been a great conversation. Where can people learn more about your work? Well, it's been a great pleasure and joy for me to join you. Uh, They can go to my website, www.josephloconti.com, and you'll see my various works and and articles and essays, and you can order the book from amazon.com. Uh, love to have people join that website, join me in conversation, Facebook as well. Fantastic. Joseph Lucanti, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, sir. Great being with you. My guest today was Joseph Lucanti. He is the author of the book, 
A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and the Great War. It's available on Amazon.com. You can also find more information about his work at josephlaconti.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy our show, please give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us out a lot. The show is uh, recorded on clearcast.io. If, you have any, uh, if you're a podcaster and you have uh, do remote podcasts, check it out. It's a service that I've been working on with my brother-in-law to make sound quality better for remote podcasts. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.